Um, as you may have seen, I put out something uh, looking for questions for Chad Hag. Uh, he was meant to be joining us uh, this weekend, but uh, he has actually rescheduled. Uh, I think he lives in India and he's in the middle of like monsoon rains or something. He really lives off grid being a, you know, he's into peak oil and all that. So uh, I'm not sure when he'll be on, but yeah, that's been deferred for a while till uh, he can sort that out. Uh, but this evening, anyway, I'm delighted to be joined by Tyler Hamilton, who's the host of EBL, uh, Euro Bureau of Literatura. And you can find that on the NPI Radix channel on YouTube. Um, and he also has his own YouTube channel, Thamster Witnat. Uh, maybe you'd like to introduce yourself, Tyler, uh, talk a little bit about, uh, about your background. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be on a stream with you again. It's been a while since we've done this, so it's delightful. But um, my background is, I guess, kind of opposite in ways for a lot of people. Rather than going into university and leaving a Marxist, I went into university a Marxist and left basically where I am now. The education I received was largely in post-liberal theology and phenomenology, so it ended up cleansing away the Marxism out of me and pushed me towards what you could call dissident right, although I prefer not to use that term because I don't like negative terms in the sense that it's just a placeholder until we find out, until we find a more suitable name that, you know, represents something that offers a challenge to where the world is right now. But so my background is when I had, when I came along into all this, I I came along with understanding as a Marxist, as understanding, you know, the various antagonisms and culture arose from the economic and the material base that essentially formed how man sees himself and how man sees each other. And it was through the education I received where I began actually to question this, where I encountered the ideas that liberalism and Marxism shared largely the same ontology in the sense that they understood the general project of enlightenment to be one of domination of human and non-human nature by technology. And so I came to reject Marxism and turn towards a more perspe perspective that was rooted both in theology and in biology. So the theological side would, of course, correspond to post-liberal theology, and then the biology side would correspond to the work in phenomenology I was doing at the time, which is on the school of Herschelian phenomenology, it's called the way that it played a role in uh, a rising movement in cognitive science called embodied cognition. And so I was gradually coming to the point where I am now, where I began to see the problems of the world more in the sense of how these various different networks of meaning, which are biologically rooted and economically rooted, play off each other and are weaponized against each other in such a way that you can't put the onus on one of these or the other, but rather it's the complex web in which these things are tangled together that we need to sort out. And that informed the perspective of where I came from. And so at the time, of course, this was all happening during the Trump election, and I got involved in the all right at that time. And so fast forward to here, this is where I am now, of course. That's interesting. Kind of a kind of a similar trajectory to myself. I got red pilled around 2016 as well. So like that's interesting. How did you encounter the alt right then? Because I mean and also like what's the what's the reaction? You know, you're obviously amongst academics who are 
mostly left wing, I'd imagine. Uh, yet your, you know, your face docks and everything is that not, you know, have you got a frosty reception over that? Uh, surprisingly, no. But I think I lucked out in this regard because uh, the university I was in is a Christian university, and it was a stronghold for post-liberal theology. So they were challenging neoliberalism and Marxism. And they were trying to understand and offer a critique and an understanding which is not rooted in, you know, the left, right? And so this was um, th this played a huge formative role for me. I remember one of my earliest uh, discussions with my mentor, and he had told me that capitalism could burn in hell. And of course, at the time, I was an impressionable young Marxist, so I thought he must have meant like some sort of version of liberal theology, uh, liberal or liberation theology. Of course, that's not what he meant. He was trying to challenge the whole notion of modernity itself and the way in which the private and public split creates this zone of secular, neutral, universalizing reason in which everybody, the whole of humanity, regardless of where you're from, is capable of coming to the same moral law by the same process of rationality that's inherent to everybody. This is the creation of the secular, neutral sphere which is so binded uh, problems of morality and propped up nihilism in the sense that we're always trying to translate our moral commitments into this neutral language. And it doesn't really work that way because it's essentially a view from nowhere. So when I was introduced to this kind of ways of critique, um, I was being essentially mentored in this tradition. And so when I started to move in this direction, I, I, I was initially quite worried and, um, I guess just to quickly say the way in which I found my way over here is actually partly because being in the black metal scene, and there's a lot of tie with third positionism, of course. And so I was introduced to a lot of alt-right figures that way. And I remember one friend just listening to me talk about philosophy said, you sound a lot like Richard Spencer. And at the time, I didn't know who that was. And so I looked into him and, you know, that helped find my way over here. But um, the reception I got from my mentors was surprisingly positive. I mean, with the theology side, I wasn't terribly surprised because a lot of the same concerns I was working upon, concerns about you know the question of technology and neoliberalism and homogenization of the world, um, the gradual dissolving of ethnic, ethnic realities into homogenous cultural consumer units, were largely the same critiques they were making. I was a little more worried on my philosophy mentor, who was a, who was a friend of Emmanuel Levinas, which, if you may know, was Heidegger's student, and he was Jewish. And, you know, most of his family ended up in the camps. So he, I expected him to actually um, be the one to disregard me on this, on this account. And I spoke quite candidly with him. And surprisingly, he actually is very supportive of the direction I've taken. In, in the sense that I was one of the only students willing to go against the grain of um, what you would call liberal left thought that's taken over the utiliversity in a sense. And I use utiliversity there on purpose. Universities now are just uh, utility institutions. But um, yeah, so it, in a sense, I, I was a bit worried, but I've been lucky. But I think that's just because of who I ended up getting as mentors and who I ended up getting to speak on my behalf. And yeah, I, I think most people in my position don't have the luck that I do in this regard. But I would say, in a way, now that I'm on a bit of an academic hiatus, I do miss it because there's a lot of things in the distant right that um, almost like trigger words you can't really talk about without 
upsetting people, right? Much in the same way in academia, there's things you can't talk about that upset them. So it's almost like, you know, there we kind of, I kind of have the same problem anywhere I go, really. But <laughs> yeah. it is what I is. But I, given what's been going on with you in the last couple of weeks, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. So yeah, the the right wing SJW cancel culture, but uh, that kind of ties into what you were saying earlier that you you know you don't like the label this and right, and we're kind of looking for a label. And uh, there has been it's been especially pronounced, I'd say, since the lockdown, the kind of split that seems to exist and what people do call the distant right between the more uh, conservative minded types, you know, the people that will focus a lot more on kind of uh, Marxist subversion and like the extremes of progressivism um, and not really, uh, not really look at structural analysis or be very averse to uh, uh, more sort of structural analysis uh, that sounds kind of vaguely left wing to them. And then, what seems to be being created on the other side, which is a more of a third positionist movement uh, that's taken on more populist economic ideas. Um, so, I mean, if you know, if you're not comfortable with this right, how would you identify as politically? I mean, you're obviously a, a nationalist of, of some stripe, or white identitarian. But what do you think is the, the way forward for us in terms of labeling or what do you think is going to ultimately come out of this split? Well, I, I think just to be the most straightforward, I'm third positionist or fascist. Um, what, what, I, what I do mean when I say, with like the distant right label is just a placeholder, it's not that I'm negating the word fascist, but because pretty much that is what I am. But to me, the interesting question is where we are now is that neoliberalism is experiencing a crisis of thought. It's becoming largely exhausted. It's unable to think of itself past beyond any sort of financial repression that it props up in order to keep itself and the world essentially stable. Because, you know, unfortunately, that system that we have is a global financial stability. And so what we're seeing now is greater and greater centralization into more and more financial and technocratic tyranny. And so the question to me then becomes is largely the classical fascist question is the use of the state and hierarchy and the, and the martial order is to me largely where we need to go to counteract the excesses of capital. Because when you look at the way capital functions, it's largely a system without name or responsibility. It's various networks of actors playing off this system and speculating and it's almost like there's no sense of formalization for it. There's no sense of responsibility. And so what we're essentially trying to do is to articulate a theory of the state and a theory of fascism for this current century, which will be able to counteract the excesses of neoliberalism, but also do so responsibly, right? Like at my heart, I'm a nationalist, I'm a white identitarian, but I think there's a lot of issues that are fundamentally moral questions that come along when you're critiquing power from a distant perspective. So just to give an example, right, when we are, and we get this criticism a lot, and I'm sure you get the same one too, is that we're essentially powerless dissidents. So it makes no sense for us to talk about what we would do if we had power. But of course, you do have to do that because essentially when you're in a dissident position, you're making the claim that the way the world is is not the way it should be, that it's bringing about deaths of despair, it's bringing about inhumanity, it's bringing about financial tyranny. And so 
what you're offering is a system that's going to replace it. But we also live in a globally connected world. And so you have to be able to deal with these realities. So I've been trying to push this question with very extreme examples recently, much in the way in which you're talking about solidarity with Palestinians. So I tried to take that a bit further. And I, I was taking a look at, you know, in Canada, we have a particular figure who's considered a Canadian hero, General uh, Romeo Dallier. And he was working for the UN peacekeepers on the mission in Rwanda, which ended in genocide, right? And now if you look at this case, the UN basically blocked him at every opportunity from intervening. And you know, if you look at the causes behind this, there's obvious financial causes with, say, for example, the French interest in the region. This largely happened because of interests of global capital. And so when we're talking about what would it mean to have white imperium or to have um, white hegemony, when we're talking about European responsibility to effectively be who we are, because we all praise what we did for the whole history of our civilization, our people, what we gave to the world. What we're saying is we want to be the ones that is able to pick up this crisis neoliberalism has left us and offer something in a solution. And to do so would have to be responsibly and with the use of power, and it has to be a moral vision. Because we're saying the way of the world is, is not adequate, and it's creating all these antagonisms, and it's up to us to do something about it. So I tried to push these questions, and I use that example, particularly because, as opposed to the Zionist and Palestinian example, which is definitely true, this is a case in which you do have to be a little, a little more serious when it's not purely transactional, but it's rather more about responsibility and to be who we are and to act on our role of the world and what we want to see ourselves as. And of course, the pushback that I got from it was, well, we're talking about a genocide, which we're not right, so we should just isolate. And of course, what comes with that, we all know when these things happen, you get more refugees, right? You get all kinds of consequences that come from this. But even so, the question that we have to ask is when we're trying to prop up a third positionism or fascism or an imperium for the 21st century, then we're going to have to answer the serious questions that come along with this globally connected world. And so that's largely what we've been attempting to do with uh, you know, me, yourself, and all of us that are engaged in this project of trying to carry forward this worldview into the century and the antagonisms that we deal with that come along with it that are unique to this time period, right? Yeah, it is a, it's kind of a weird criticism to hold like, well, we're not in power, so like, why are you wasting your time talking about anything other than, you know, whatever the latest outrage is? I mean, like, you know, if they're around in the 19th century, can you imagine them like telling Karl Marx, you know, why are you bothering writing, uh, writing all these volumes of capital? You know, you you have no institutional power. It's a waste of time. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It's a weird thing with the Internet. Like there's there's this kind of neuro tribalism developing where everyone is going off into their own spaces. And then it's, it seems to be like as time progresses, the spaces get more and more niche. And even in like uh, kind of weird, obscure, uh, dissident political culture online, even they start fragmenting and they go into third position versus uh, more populist nationalism and those fragmentations within that. So, uh, like, how do you think the internet is going to change dissident politics or like our interaction with the political in general in, in the 21st century? Because 
I mean, the differences that things like like Twitter and these platforms have made, and now with the the more decentralized peer to peer platforms like like BitChute and Telegram and these things, it seems like at the same time as uh, things are becoming increasingly like homogenous and centralized, and uh, even political opinion and the the spectrum of acceptable political opinion is is narrowing. That at the same time you have these spaces opening up that will facilitate a very radical dissent. So you know there seems to be a, a kind of tension there. How do you see that playing out in the in the next few years or decades? You know, I tend to see it as like the Greek word pharmacon, you know, which is where we get the word pharmacy from. It's a poison and a cure at the same time, and. The reason I mean that is because it's certainly true that what we're seeing with the internet is greater and greater um, spaces of dissent. And I think that that's something we need is this move away from centralization, from traditional media. We're able to actually take hold of new and alternative media spaces. We're able to create and propagate alternative messages that can challenge the status quo, right? You see more and more people are turning away from mainstream sources and starting to look more to these... um, what you might say, although I don't think they really are dissonant voices. So that's why you get like big podcasts like Red Scare and things like that, or Steve Bannon's, is there's there's certainly an awareness of the elites of what's going on, right? And that's why you see things like Bannon going on Red Scare and then later talking about moving manufacturing from China to India. What he's doing is he's taking genuine working class and white in particular concerns about losing manufacturing and then saying, okay, yeah, we agree with you. Now let's move it to India. Well, that's obviously not really what they need. But of course, that goes to show that what we're doing is on their radar, and that's why they're trying to co-opt it, just like in the same way they did so during the Trump election when they tried to put everybody under the same banner, all this uh, varieties of dissidents that was called the alt-right and then motivated towards Trump, and then that energy, of course, went back into the establishment. And so I think... To even talk about needing to exercise discernment with the way the internet is going is just not good enough because one of the major problems is when you look at these distant spaces on Telegram, Twitter, BitChute, whatever have you, is they have the exact same problem of, as you were saying, they become so niche to the point that they're only really talking to each other. And then so when you pose a question that is attempting to move them from one stage to the other or to engage with, we might say, Uh, your average person, it it becomes lost in translation. It becomes immediately defensive, right? And so one thing I'm always trying to tell people is you have to meet people where they are, right? So if you look at people that work in education or the healthcare system or or employment and things like that, what, what they're trying to do is these are people who aren't essentially bad people, but they are people who are looking for answers because the system in which they're operating is beginning to fail them, right? You look at teachers, they're giving these new curriculums, and they're seeing the effects of the woke stuff that they're pushing, and, you know, the kids aren't learning, right? They can see right through it. And so they're seeing the failure to actually carry out and maintain stability. Essentially, they're dealing with the collapse of the West in real time. And so what I'm trying to get people to do is to take these serious questions that we talk about and not just ghettoize ourselves in these niche cultures, but be able to help provide answers that are dynamic and creative. 
and that could actually challenge the rating order. We have to be able to engage with professionals and we have to be able to provide this answer or else it's just going to end up being another niche subculture and then another movement probably one we don't want to win something that will be hostile to us is going to be the one that takes over or it's just going to slip into all various modes of chaos like slipping away into a, a version of brazil essentially and so i think that i'd like I like the way internet technology is decentralizing things, but I do have my worry about it. I think we do need to take a little more responsibility as in our role that we're claiming to have anyways as the dissident, right? So, yeah. Well, seeing as we're kind of uh, discussing like prospects or strategy, uh, you know, you mentioned the F word earlier, fascism, uh, I guess this kind of gets into the whole optics debate and optics discussion. And I, I've seen you kind of come out hard against uh, people that advocate for. Well, I, I don't know if it's even accurate to say that they, they advocate for optics, because oftentimes the, the arguments I'd say are, are quite cynical and it's not really. I think everyone agrees that uh, optics are, are important on some level. But in terms of like labeling, uh, you know, third position or taking an explicitly radical label, versus appealing to populism and maybe appealing to conservatism and trying to make conservatism more national or, uh, you know, something like the the Trump 2016 phenomenon where, uh, you know, he was combining uh, a kind of national populism uh, bordering on uh, a kind of white nationalism, or that's certainly what a lot of people read into it, uh, with the, the establishment conservatism. So I'd kind of like to hear your take on that, what you think of that approach, uh, you know, the more sort of Amnat, Nick Fuentes approach of of trying to steer conservatism in another direction. Well, I'm wholeheartedly uh, against that approach for a few reasons. I think um, if you look at the history of dis various dissident right movements, um, particularly me that own, all the way back to the 70s to the 80s with the moral majority the way in which the Castro lot in with Ronald Reagan, or you look at the pale of conservatives in the 90s with Patrick Buchanan, you always get the same problem where you you try to put your energy into a candidate who is a part of establishment conservative. Not that Patrick Buchanan is, but he was he was he's one of the very very good figures of our past. But what happens is is you you bring this genuine resentment into American conservative movements and you you tr you try to bring people in almost secret squirrel like you're using words like freedom and liberty the American way of life and we want to return to this great American past and what ends up happening is that becomes a part of the way in which the establishment weaponizes these terms to essentially promulgate a vision of the American way of life which is more in line with neoliberalism so if you look at what happens to all these movements they give all their energy, they prop up uh, a Reagan or a Buchanan, and then, you know, Buchanan, once he had lost, he uh, endorsed George Bush, George Bush Sr., because it's the lesser of the two evils, apparently. And so what ends up happening when you appeal to conservatives is you are essentially appealing to a sense of, of like a, a, like a, let, let me say it this way, if you look at we talked about in the Marcuse stream on One Dimensional Man. We talked about the way in which, when we talk about American way of life or the shared sense of identity from what we buy, which we take a look at 
it stems from this idea of, you know, you have freedom and liberty to purchase things on the market, and that becomes the condition for freedom as long as you don't, you know, hurt other people, X, Y, Z. We all bleed red, white, and blue. And so when you appeal to a lot of these conservatives, you bring a whole bunch of them into this movement, and then what ends up happening is instead of offering an alternative or showing the ways in which that very same ideology that they participate in almost as a collective fiction becomes a part of the movement. It becomes something that we endlessly have to push back on because it ends up bringing all this baggage <laughs> into this movement. And then now we're spending more time trying to fight off reactionary understandings, which are more or less just gatekeeping. It's like, you know, you have to you have to play to, to play to this kind of intuitive sense that the average American has about what America means. But the problem is what America means is itself the propaganda that is essentially stopping people from criticizing it. It's what pe keeps people in this idea that freedom is purely, uh, you know, positive or, or that freedom is something in which you just have the freedom to buy useless plastic objects or to freedom to be politically incorrect and say racist things as if that's somehow you know, an actual challenge. It's not. It's impotent. And the way then they use this human rights discourse, right? So you look at gun rights, for example. What does that mean? It's essentially a way for powerless people to feel that they have power. We all know what happens whenever these gun rights things happen. Most of the time, like the Virginia state rally, what they intended to pass through is legislation passed through anyways. They got to participate in the system. They claimed that they had the power of the people on their side. Oh, look, we... We stood up for our rights and then we, we did our goal and then whatever, we're still powerless at the end of the day. And so these very same, these very same ideological fiction that glosses over the reality of America comes into dissident politics. So when you try to appeal to that, ultimately you're just stuck trying to deal with the effects rather than moving forward or critiquing it properly, right? I suppose then the retort to that from the people on the other side would be, well, you know, uh, the radical left are just extremely anti-white and, uh, you know, the left wing won't listen to you. And really the only avenue we have is to appeal to people that are kind of center right or that are attracted to conservatism because it's the best thing they can find uh, and move that in another direction. And, you know, the infrastructure is kind of already established. Uh, and I guess the challenge back is like, like, well, you know, radical third positionism uh, isn't isn't viable electorally. And, you know, anyone that goes in front of an electorate and calls himself a, a fascist or a third positionist is going to get trounced. And so there has to be an element of pragmatism in, in trying to uh, kind of find a middle ground and uh, appeal to conservatives. So, I mean, what would your counter be to that? Is it just a, a faulty understanding of of how power works or if that's the case then then what is the the avenue to power if not through uh you know uh populist uh, populist electoral route yeah i mean i like right out of the gate i don't take the so like if you look at what this dispute is about it's the underlying idea behind it is that we have to appeal to our large amounts of people and if you appeal to large amounts of people, they're going to demand change. And then that's going to shake things up. I don't think that's how that really works. I mean, just to 
answer basically, I guess, at first. It, it's certainly true. A lot of more third positionist ideas are going actually are going to appeal to a lot of people on the left. It, the fact is, a lot of people do come over from the left, just as much as people do come over from the right, right? So it, it is certainly possible, but that's not something I put my hope in. For me, and this is why I still, this is why I hesitate with like the dissident right phase and trying to come up with a, something new that is corresponding to the problems that we have. It's because I think change ultimately doesn't come from mass movements. Power comes from various institutions and government and military and any any force that you could think of that reproduces ideology. And so the goal for us, I think, isn't to try to appeal on a mass movement because those things come after. That's not the way in which revolutions tend to work. They don't just spontaneously arise from the masses. They come from the essentially the struggle between primary and secondary institutions, right? And so what I think our goal should be, should be to try to have the dynamic solutions that are going to play off, say, the martial order against the interests of capital or try to play off the state against the capital, right? Because we know the state right now is completely bound up in financial empire. And so I think what we should be trying to do is to try to theorize and articulate a way in which we have a better solution to the current crises that are facing us and we have a better solution than our ideological competitors. The mass movements, they come after, but what we're essentially trying to do is to navigate the way in which these various institutional and state actors prop up these antagonisms, and then we're therefore going to try to come up with a better answer. So I, I don't think populism is really the way forward in the left or the right variety. So then it would be some kind of trying to attract powerful elites would be the other approach, obviously. Yeah, when I say elites, I don't just mean like, let's all go get funded by Peter Thiel or something stupid like that. Because I mean, if you look at you know who they're funding, if you look at like right wing donors, for example, they fund people to they fund them not to get tasks done. They fund them to um, propagate an image. They they fund like um, someone like Milo because he's gay. And so they're like, oh, well, that's going to challenge the narrative that conservatives are all anti-homosexual and socially conservative. Or they all fund someone like Caitlin Bennett, like, oh, who can we put in a bikini to wave a gun around and you know appeal to this American populism? While more on the left, they, they more fund people to get things done, right? That's through, that's through Soros funds. The, the leads I'm talking about is more not trying to find these great big don institutional donors, but it's more to be able to insert a narrative or an alternative to these professionals who work in these institutions themselves and to be able to actually have a solution that takes us outside of the niche where we're just talking to each other. And so this is why I'm always trying to use cases where they might send off a trigger word, like I was saying earlier, like talking about Rwanda, for example, because we're offering an understanding that is going to be able to deal with these questions and meet people where they are with the concerns that they have. And so then we can enter public discourse and we can enter these kinds of debates that need to happen because I, I'm really not interested in just, you know, talking to all of 
talking to this everybody in this movement all the time. I want it to be so we could talk to people outside of it that has something to say. Mm. And, yeah, is, there, is there not a concern that even if you do have, a, you know, a novel solution to something that the powers that be will basically uh, adopt it and cast you by the wayside anyway. Like I saw um, Charlie Kirk was doing a stream during the week with Will Chamberlain and they were both arguing that we need to uh, uh, implement laws to stop tech censorship. And it was really interesting because they were making the arguments that I remember people in the alt-right making in like 2017. Uh, like I remember... Uh, you know, when the the Daily Stormer got kind of taken off the internet, that uh, there were some arguments around the, you know, the uh, the moral uh, case for tech censorship that became popular in the alt-right. And uh, Charlie Kirk and Will Chamberlain were making all these arguments to the point that Kirk was even like, well, you know, uh, you know, rights are great and I'm all for individual rights. But at the end of the day, you know, individual rights only exist for the good of the state. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just a real Charlie Kirk. But uh, it seems like they're kind of, you know, they, they've they kind of sensed the direction things are going in in terms of populism. And Trump had a lot to do with that. And it seems like mainstream conservatism in the US may adopt more kind of third positionist ideas without any of the, uh, the racial stuff that will be kind of uh, civic nationalist third positionism but then you know it's like well maybe that's good that they're adopt adopting our good ideas and it'll improve society or whatever because our ideas are best but it's like if at the same time they're taking your ideas and you're still left out of the conversation does it just become another way to kind of prop up this false dialectic between establishment conservatism and liberalism yeah well that's that's a serious worry right Ed? You know, this is partly why, because I advocate the strategy of the high and low versus the middle that I briefly outlined earlier. But the, to me, though, this is why I don't, well, not just because I believe in it, but, but uh, why I don't surrender a lot of the working class or populist or racialist sentiments, right? I don't surrender them entirely. I think if we're trying to not become co-opted, I think we need to be able to meet the very real suffering people in our community where they are and talk about what matters to them and talk about the way in which the establishment hijacking of our messages is actually weaponized against them, right? And so I think what, what we sort of have is an, an economy of desire. It's like Benjamin would talk about it. So when the establishment conservatives, when they hijack our message, what they're essentially doing is what they're trying to do with like what they did with the 60s liberation movements where they bring our message and the resentment that fuels it which is very real right what's happening to whites is very real that's what i'm concerned about and then they bring it in and they try to solve it by saying okay look we'll solve tech censorship this is a great idea that we you know picked from these dissident movements and they're seeing which way the wind is blowing and so what they're trying to do is they're trying to solve um what we see as what they're what what they're leaving lacking and so they're trying to solve that desire they're trying to answer it and they're trying to co-opt it and so i think we in carrying out this kind of strategy we can't lose sight of what we're doing it for and we have to be able to critique establishment messages about it right we can't just be purely dialectical 
in our reasoning. We can't just be like, okay, well, if if this is the crisis, we have a solution. This is clearly what we need, right? And then just leave it at that and then let the establishment take over from there. That's what happens with all dialectical reasoning. And so I think we have to keep the idea of paradox, right? Which is the way of saying when you're talking, say, theologically, like kingdom of God is always here, but it's also never here. It's never arrived. It's a point that we have to be able to be discerning and firm in our message. And we can't pull ourselves in to such an extent that we just become a part of the way the system functions. So I, I'm in this weird space where I'm articulating a critique and I'm wanting to ally with, say, as you were talking about earlier, the Palestinians, um, with those in all of our communities who are feeling the effects of financial empire. And then with this understanding, be able to articulate a vision that is going to actually fundamentally restructure how we think about power and moral governance and to be one in which the European race is able to ascend back to its position of hegemony. And so I'm in the space where I'm not really po I'm not really populist, but I'm not give everything over to the elites either. I think we're in a very challenging position just because nobody in all of our history has ever dealt with the same set of conditions that we have, right? I mean, you could talk about Weimar Germany, sure, but this is still before American empire was what it was it what it is now. So I think in dealing with these problems, we have to come up with dynamic solutions, but this requires a lot of theorizing and a lot of understanding that we simply have not reached yet. But I think that's what we're trying to do, right? Yeah, and you know, the other thing that makes the prospect kind of grim is even though we talk about how bad Weimar Germany was, at the same time it was you know, it was uh, ethnically homogenous, it was German. And so it's like, well, even if they have a, a generation of complete degeneracy, uh, they can still, you know, they can eventually remove that and this will be German. But it's like, even if uh, if we happen to come to power tomorrow morning, it's like, well, we have these uh, very large minorities of, of, uh, of non-whites, of foreigners in our countries. And it's like, you know, there's no, uh, there's no immediate solution to that, and uh, that's that's not a problem. I think any uh, any nationalism has has really faced in a, a previous epoch. Just the, the level of immigration since the Second World War, I think, really makes makes things difficult. Um, and that, that's that's been discussed recently because a patriotic alternative in the UK that's uh, run by Mark Collette and Laura Towler. Uh, introduced uh, a policy for repatriation and they were talking about uh, ways that have of uh, incentivizing people to leave the UK and Nick Griffin who used to lead the British National Party came out and he said that you know um, talking about electoral victories is basically a waste of time that the, the BNP was kind of uh, it was the most success that a European Nationalist Party could have and that basically it's too late now because of demographics and because the media control and, uh, you know, the interests of, of capital would just come down and destroy a party like that if they were close to getting power. And so Nick Griffin advocates uh, abandoning the electoral process and basically focusing on community building and uh, having children and basically waiting for a collapse 
uh, that he thinks is inevitable. Um, and I don't really like that attitude. It's very defeatist. But at the same time, you know, you can kind of look at this system and think, you know, without a collapse, is there really a way to reverse these trends? I mean, it was it's difficult enough to get politicians into power on like a national populist ticket. But to try and reverse uh, decades of mass immigration, especially when that's probably going to lead to uh, economic contraction when you're shrinking your population like that, you know, you wonder, is that even possible uh, within this system? Is that even possible while we're living under capitalism? It seems like it would require radical change to the point of collapse. So I'm not sure what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear Nick Griffin thinks that. I mean, this is this reminds me of the debate I had last year when the we you know I was one of the wing nats that was opposed to Trump, and then that same group eventually split off into the siege types that were talking about waiting for collapse, which is something that you know I've always opposed because I, I you know I do think like with patriotic patriotic alternative drawing up say plans for re, repatriation is important, right? These are the realities that you have to deal with somewhere down the line. But what I what I do think about this is that you, you can't really put all your eggs in one basket. You know, collapse is probably not going to happen in the way in which we want it to happen. <laughs> well, I, I don't want it to happen in the way that, you know, people hope, to be quite frank. But um, essentially, when you're putting all your eggs in one basket and then you're just sitting there waiting for a collapse... You're going to get become more and more irrelevant and isolated, and into a niche. And while I do see the criticism of, say, a populist or a third positionist party, I do think you should still do that, though. And I, I think part part of the reason for that is, is that the way in which the war on our people is happening right now is primarily technological and informational and resentment fueling, right? So. On the resentment side of things, what you're seeing now is weaponized non-white races who are trying to push us out of our position of influence. And the reason they're able to do that is because they have the approval of the CEOs who want to present an ideological face that they're woke, right? And so while that's happening, it's also motivating very real physical violence on our people at the exact same time. Because what happens when you tell everybody that the reason that they're not successful is because of white people where they're going to get violent, right? That's going to, not that they're not already to begin with, but it's going to excrebate it. And that's exactly what we've seen happening. So I think you need to do the community building side of things. You need to be able to answer and help those in community. You need to be able to build employment networks to help them out. You have to, you have to be able to carry out these projects, but those projects that we're talking about are very much, happening at the level of institutions. They're happening at the level of not even trying to construct a parallel institution because that will just get snuffed out. It's trying to enter a way in which we could somehow twist things and use it to help the people that we want to help. But we can't just re retract and then wait for a collapse because if that happens, it's going to be a very slow collapse like Brazil, right? It's going to be just greater and greater, greater ghettoization while the neoliberals continue to get more and more and more powerful and we become more and more weakened over time. So even if you if you have a party or you have an institution or you have a network or an organization 
and you're not taking power. You're you're still presenting an alternative. You're still rallying people around the common cause. So if your goal is to get people ready for a collapse in which they have to be powerful together, the best way to do that is still through organizations and parties and networks. If you just become retreating into like a rural area and then the way in which they reproduce that ideology is through education, it's through media, it's through technology, it's not through guns. And so this is something I think we need to keep in mind. So I think if you're trying to do a strategy that's going to be able to handle any crisis that comes at us, whether that be a collapse or not, the best way is still party and organization.